0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody, it's Sunday, March the 5th, 2023, unusually this uh, show will be taped, so you won't actually get to hear it until Tuesday, uh, March the 7th, because my guests booked is out then so if the world blows up tomorrow on monday good luck to everyone the the world did of course blow up in a sense three years ago with covid uh and the covid crisis if that's the right word continues to splutter on still lots of reports like this one on cnn health about um the implications of long covid on our heart and lungs um We're still arguing, apparently, uh, according to Derek Thompson in The Atlantic about masks, whether we should or we shouldn't, of course, uh, is beyond doubt. It becomes an increasingly absurd debate, but nonetheless, one that perhaps like COVID doesn't seem to go away. Um, And of course, as the BBC puts it, there continues to be the quote-unquote toxic debate about lab leak theory and China and all the the politics around that. But in overall terms, the COVID crisis, the lockdown, uh, the pandemic, which began almost uh, exactly three years ago, seems to have finished. And when you look at the headlines today, you see stories which i think describe a post-covid world the ft leads with china setting a five percent growth target to drive economic recovery which is certainly a response to their COVID experience meanwhile the wall street journal my guest used to work at the wall street journal uh, some of its lead stories focus on a post-covid economy including the fact, surprise, surprise, that bars, hotels and restaurants have become the economy's fastest growing employers. That was a sector of the economy that was completely decimated three years ago. Um, What has happened over these three years and, and, and how have many of the world's leading companies survived? How have many of us kept our jobs? My guest today, Liz Hoffman, who used to write for the Wall Street Journal. Now she writes for Semaphore. She's the economics correspondent, has a new book out. It's out on Tuesday, Crash Landing, the inside story of how the world's biggest companies survived an economy on the brink. Uh, and Liz is joining us today. Liz, uh, I mean, this stuff's always obviously easy to um, to talk about and write about in retrospect. Uh, is it wrong, though, to imagine that um, things could have ended much worse? Could the plane have crashed rather than landed?
1: No. First of all, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I mean, I'll, I'll give you just a peek into the, the book process that I think answers that question, which is that an early, uh, I believe, subhead that we were working with um, was, I think it was something like fortune and failure in the pandemic economy. And, you know, sometime in mid-2021, as, I was really in the, in the throes of reporting and writing. I called my publisher and I said, you know, not a lot of failure, we're not seeing a lot of that. Um, and so to your point, one of my big takeaways is just how much worse this could have gone. Um, and, you know, time and time again, talking to folks who were really at the table making these decisions, um, how close it came to that. Uh, and lots of reasons we didn't get there. Ultimately, we can talk about them. The biggest one, of course, is the response from uh, governments all over the world.
0: So you offer what you describe as the inside story. You are an insider, as I said. You used to work for the Wall Street Journal. Now you you're at Semaphore, um, the Smiths um, journalist startup, a news startup. What's the inside story, Liz, that we haven't heard? What what don't we know yet about COVID that will be revealed uh, on Tuesday when uh, when your book comes out?
1: You know, my my major takeaways were, you know, what I kind of just mentioned, which is just how precarious it was. I came to the story as a finance reporter. I'd covered Wall Street for uh, about a decade, and you know, I think in a way that people are constantly expecting the next crisis to look like the last one. I had expected this to be a repeat of two thousand eight, where financial markets would buckle, uh, credit would evaporate, unemployment would be massive, and would stay there for years. And that was the story I had set out expecting. To write, you would see these corporate titans go bankrupt. I mean, these big iconic blue chip names would just go poof, Um, and that didn't happen. Fundamentally, it didn't happen. And we could talk about the weirdness of the economic moment that we're in right now. Certainly, things things feel quite fraught, and I think they are. But you know, two two and a half years after the 2008 crash, I mean, the global economy was in a funk from which it would not emerge for years. So uh, you know it's it's not the most dramatic takeaway in the world but just how well things turned out and, and what we can learn as we sort of iterate forward in responding to crises. The other takeaway um, you know I, I feel like this will be a little controversial and so I always like to own it up front which is you know I talked to more than a 100 people for this book uh, and I was surprised almost from the jump and as we continue to talk for more than you know a year and a half, most people were trying to do the right thing most of the time. This was not a 2008 collapse where the the blame is terribly easy to pinpoint. There's not a particular villain. It's sort of an indictment of the economic system that had come out of you know first the wave of globalization and liberalization in the late 90s and early 2000s, and then the the sort of reliance that the economy had globally on these governments. You know, limping out of 2008. Um, This was a, a macro story that I tried to tell in a in a very micro way that that hopefully sort of brings people back to just how fraught and strange and scary and fast moving those early days were
0: a macro story told in a microwave when i first saw um the title of the book crash landing of course i thought oh no not another book about you know what uh the us airways flight 1549 and the heroics of sully sullenberger who who, who landed that jet um uh um in new york uh, on the water um in terms of the the crash landing, though, obviously there wasn't a sully in charge. Were we all in charge, Liz? I mean, I, I want to talk to you about Trump and Biden, of course. I want to talk about some of these large companies, but who was actually who was actually landing the economy uh, over the last three years during COVID?
1: You know, I think a lot of credit is due. Uh, I mean, I'm. I'm in the US, I'm in New York, and, and the story is largely one of a global economy told through the deepest, you know, capital markets and biggest economy in the world, which is here in America. Uh, I think a lot of credit is owed to a pretty shoestring staff at the Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve sort of none of whom were supposed to be where they were if you were making a list of the people you'd hoped would steer an economy through a once in a generation, once in a century shutdown. I'm not sure anyone would have landed on Steven Mnuchin, who had been a Hollywood producer and a hedge fund manager for years, or even Jerome Powell, who sort of accidentally had ended up at the Fed in the first place as a political compromise candidate a number of years before under Barack Obama. Um, And they were doing it with a very tight staff uh, and I think deserve a lot of credit. The other story that I hope comes through here is, you know, there was this huge vacuum of public sector leadership. And I'm not a political reporter. There have been many terrific books written about the Trump administration. And in particular, you know, it's handling of the COVID crisis. So I won't I won't dwell on that except to say that there was this huge void. And look, I've covered CEOs for for years now. And, you know, many of them are living kind of in their own heads, this this profiles and courage movie of which they are the star. And so I think for some sort of egoistic reasons and some genuine um, genuine sense of a desire to help, to step up, they did and they stepped into this breach. Um, and I think that actually is is laid the foundation for this world that we're living in now where CEOs are constantly in the hot seat having to weigh in on cultural and social uh, issues and getting dragged into the culture wars and i think there is like a, a dna that was laid right in the pandemic that will have a lot of impact on the sort of current and and future this crop of corporate leaders coming out and and what's expected from them
0: yeah it's interesting that the um the other headline in the journal today is that companies are now disclosing their CEO's actual pay for the first time. There's more cons- transparency, certainly when it comes to that kind of thing. Your your point about Mnuchin, of course, will be very controversial. Mnuchin was one of the uh, the characters in the, the Trump administration who was parodied. He was scandalous because of some photos taken with his wife. How does this reflect on Trump himself? The likelihood is that... Um, Trump will win the nomination and the next election will be a repeat of the previous one. And I'm guessing there'll be a lot of debate about who did what in COVID and who should take credit. Should we give Trump a little bit more credit? I mean, I'm no great fan. I don't suppose you are. He's not the most popular person um, amongst intellectuals or journalists, but do we need to give him some credit for this?
1: I would argue that the economic response um The way it was rolled out, and I think ultimately how effective it was, probably happened more in spite of the president than because of him. You'll remember, you know, Stephen Mnuchin somehow managed by sort of force of character and a little bit of a political shapeshifter. Um, He was the only cabinet secretary that lasted, I think, through all four years of the Trump presidency other uh, secretaries were constantly being fired by tweet um and you know I think had that happened had he sort of stepped uh, a foot wrong with the president in the middle of this I think it would have come out much worse so it's incredibly easy to second guess a lot of those decisions on the personnel side but I think the policy that was ultimately pursued was the right one you know the the government did and you know matched very similarly um, and pretty well coordinated by the way by um, central banks and Europe and and elsewhere, did in about six, seven weeks in March and April of 2020, what it took them nine months to do in 2008, and what they never did in 1929, 1979, 1987, previous crashes. Um, And so, uh, and ultimately, I think that is, that's what kept uh, the economy from, from entirely imploding. You know, there's an interesting kind of intellectual debate that I've kind of had, and I want to be careful because this is such a, a human. Oh, no, you don't need to be careful
0: on my show, Liz. I, I'd actually prefer <laughs> you not be careful.
1: But but had you had a pandemic that was, imagine half as bad, um, you know, requiring you know half as robust and quick a response from the government, three trillion dollars pumped into the economy instead of six trillion, and you know comparable figures across the world, I think you would have ended up with actually a more kind of interesting array of outcomes. As it was. The hole was enormous. It was more than plugged, which we've obviously seen in the last year or so, and the inflation and the sort of bumpy uh digging out from that. Um, but the hole was just plugged by the only players who can plug it, which is the lenders of last resort, which are these big central governments. So ultimately, I think a lot of credit uh is owed there. And again, it's incredibly easy to Monday morning quarterback, and there's always a trade-off between getting money out quickly and really means testing it, getting it where it absolutely needs to go. Uh, There's always fraud. But ultimately, I think these were pretty well-designed government programs, and they should go back on the shelf and get pulled off again the next time they're needed.
0: Well, hopefully we won't need it. You talk about credit owed. Uh, I'm not sure whether you meant that um, as a pun. Uh, The contrast with 2008, of course, in 2008, the government's emergency measures seemed to support the banking class and ordinary people lost their homes and lost their jobs. Many of them lost their lives. This time around, it seems a, a little different. Um You talk in, in your book about the Paycheck Protection Program, otherwise known as PPE, and then the, 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 the CARES Act, the Coronavirus Relief and Economic Security Act. W- was the response, and I use this word carefully, was it a fair one? Did it Apply to everybody, there were many stories and there have been many stories about scammers, people who took advantage of PPE, um, companies that took advantage of it. Or or, or in contrast with 2008, was this a government response that protected everybody in in America, at least?
1: You know, as I report in the book, the the sort of bean counters at Treasury um, were trying to figure out a way to keep people employed, because one lesson coming out of 2008 was that When an economy kind of slowly grounds to a halt over the course of a year, 18 months, it's incredibly hard to uh, restart it. There was some academic thinking, which largely, I think, was proven here that faster shutdowns are easier to bounce back from, assuming that you can build a bridge to get to that other side. And so the Paycheck Protection Program, which, as you note, uh, effectively paid payroll for small businesses, um, millions of them. Uh, you know, they did a lot of math and they said, we think it'll cost about $600 billion. And ultimately that's what they got from, from Congress. Uh, and it came out just under that. I mean, it was an incredibly well-designed government program. You know, look, you can argue about whether these things were fair. I would note that most of the criticism for the response has been that it was sort of overly fair, right? Most of the criticism here in the U.S. has been from the right That it was sort of overly generous, that it encouraged a kind of nanny state paternalism, and that if you're going to pay people not to work, they're not going to work. And there is certainly some truth in all of that. But I think the politics around this crisis were just worlds away from 2008. There was not an obvious villain, certainly not a villain that everyone was already kind of pre-wired to hate like Wall Street. Wall Street, I'll note, held up incredibly well, um, which again, I think is a backward looking testament to a lot of the regulatory changes that were put in place in the early 2010s. So, um, I, you know, I don't think, I I've, I've thought about this a lot because, you know, a lot of the political movements of the mid to late 2010s very clearly had their roots in what was widely and I think rightly perceived as an unfair sort of Uh, corporate, uh, overly corporately deferential response to 2008. I don't know what that will be here. I don't know whether you'll see some kind of domestic political movement that's more of a backlash to what we've seen, but certainly that economic nationalism, we can talk more about it, but, you know, a a macro victim of all of this, I think, is is the sort of fraying of that, what was widely once assumed to be um, an inevitable kind of liberal world order.
0: Yeah, I, I I think you're right on the Republican critique, although it's the old Republican m- critique. It's the McConnell critique rather than the Trumpian one. I guess the progressive, I don't know if it's a critique, but the progressive reading of this, and I've had guests on my show suggesting this, is that there's always money in crisis. So the trillions of dollars, whether it was six or uh, six, three or six trillion that the U.S. Treasury found for CARES, came out in, in 2020, 2021, but it's always there. Well, How would you respond to that idea that the government can find money when it wants to? And today in 2023, as America confronts, Really profound socio-economic problems, inequality, uh, crime, uh, homelessness, drugs. Uh, that money is no longer available.
1: I think that's an absolutely fair criticism. You know, I think the tension in a capitalist economy, one that is free more or less from state control, um, means that you have to be very careful about when you turn on the spigot. Um, I think. You- I'm not a policy expert, um, nor do I cover, you know, the welfare state in the U.S. So I'll, I'll probably refrain from making an argument. There isn't a
0: welfare state in the U.S., Liz. That's the critique.
1: Uh, it is certainly not as robust. I'm as I'm joking, it, but there isn't it could much. And should be. Be. Anyway. No, but I mean, look, I think I think the government needs to be careful and try to limit these really dramatic involvements to to times of crisis. I mean, just think back to 2008. Again, we can argue about whether bankers should have gone to prison and and you know whether the the sort of moral justice was was laid out, but the government, I mean, had an, the Fed had an incredibly hard time weaning the markets off this idea that the Fed would be the ultimate backstop and money would be free, and ultimately it only really managed to do so in the last year as it started to raise interest rates in response to the inflation and the, the economic conditions we've seen. So I think I don't take moral hazard lightly and no one I know who's ever been in a position of authority um, in financial regulation does. So, um, you know, and I also I also think that there's a, a balance that needs to be struck and different political camps come down differently on it between what is something that only the federal government can do versus what is something that could or should or could be financially incentivized and pushed onto the private sector. In a situation like the pandemic, The latter simply wasn't an option right i mean these economies shut down they were forced to shut down if the the government is going to tell businesses you can't operate then i think absolutely the right thing to do is to make them whole
0: so where's the money going to come from to pay i mean this will be i'm sure a republican talking point maybe not so much trump but certainly the more moderate traditional republicans where is the money going to come from to pay back the trillions of dollars that were invested um maybe that's the wrong word that were that we used as this crash landing or or is that the wrong way to think about it
1: um i mean look to the people always say well every spending bill is a tax bill right either you're raising taxes to pay for it or you're borrowing from future people who will be taxed to pay for it um there's a school of thought that says that as long as the dollar is the reserve currency of the world um that you know debt uh, you know. Uh, relative levels of debt. So to GDP, we're close to 100% these days, It's actually less of a concern than you would think if the economy is going to continue to grow. There's another school of thought that says, well, you've got mounting debt, you've got higher interest rates, right? Then in trying to solve the problem, the medicine here might actually be worse than the illness, which is you are hiking borrowing costs for central, for governments, at the time that they have huge waves of, of debt that's going to be coming due. I tend not to be a debt catastrophist. Um, you know, I think most developed economies have continued to grow their way out um, unevenly, but, but over the long term, pretty consistently.
0: It's interesting you brought up the Federal Reserve earlier in terms of uh, acknowledging their successful um, navigation of this crisis. I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Christopher Leonard. He's been on the show a couple of times. He was one of the most articulate, I think, critics of quantitative easing and the role of the Federal Reserve in the 2008 crisis. Has the Federal Reserve changed its spots? Um, I don't know what you think of Leonard's work, but there are others also who are very critical of the Fed's response to 2008 crisis um explain what the federal reserve did uh to help your your crash landing uh, of the covid crisis
1: um i mean there were a bunch of so if you remember the early days it was really a, a financial markets problem the stock market crashed which is you know emotionally jarring though far less important than people think to the functioning of a modern economy uh credit started to dry up you started to see people sell whatever they could you know traditionally in in times of financial fear and stress people sell risky stuff and move into safe stuff so you'll see things like Real estate prices uh, collapse and tech stocks and things like crypto go down and everyone buys treasury bonds. Here, it actually went the other way around, which was an incredibly frightening experience for policymakers. People sold not what they thought was riskiest, but whatever there was a bid for. So you started to see times in the early days and weeks of the pandemic where you could not sell treasury bonds in size. The most liquid asset in the world, the most creditworthy counterparty on the planet did not have buyers. And there was, as I noted in the book, there was a real concern that a treasury auction might fail, um, which would have been incredibly damaging uh, and, and really only poured gasoline on the fire. So they rolled out a bunch of these, Kind of trading backstop programs where where banks and brokers could take assets that maybe are not a plus plus like treasuries but are pretty pretty solid very highly rated corporate bonds and other things and pledge them to the, the central bank and get liquid get cash back. But and the idea is you have to keep cash moving. People have to be able to borrow. You can't start to see these seize ups in the market because they just create panics and it's sort of a digital financial equivalent. You know, there's a reason that big bank buildings that we all think of had these huge lobbies. And the reason is that they never wanted a line to form out the door because all that does is spark panic. So the idea is to sort of create as much space, as much fluidity in the the sort of lobby of the financial system as you can. And the way to do that is to throw a lot of money at it. Um, So that was the the sort of monetary and market side. We haven't talked at all about what's called fiscal policy, which is, uh, the role of the legislature in cutting checks to people. That's the actual spending. Um, and that was
0: part of the PPE program.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and the CARES Act, which sent these $1,200 checks to to Americans you know, for, for more than a year. Um, I think there were clearly mistakes made on both sides. I tend to think they are forgivable understanding the trade-offs that were made. But certainly there was, I think the spigot was open too long, too wide on both fronts, which is to say that the Fed was too slow to start raising interest rates. Probably should have done it in their meetings in late 2021, and didn't start until 2022. Your, your listeners will remember the Bank of England was on this, um, you know, earlier and talking much more aggressively about whether inflation was was here to stay or was kind of a blip. Um, and then on the on the fiscal stimulus side, like too much money was sent to people. I think that last round of aid um, will probably, in the academic literature, be viewed as a mistake.
0: Les, what do the numbers tell us uh, in 2023, in March 23, compared to March 2020? Um, your, your book talks about the crisis in the stock market and going below 30,000. But today, I think the stock market is at about thirty three or 34,000. Uh, we have a, an upcoming scenario of another debate, maybe crisis over the U.S. debt. How does the economy in terms of debt and stock prices and unemployment uh, and, of course, inflation, how is it different in March 23 from March 2020?
1: Well, it certainly feels a lot worse, um, which I actually think is quite healthy. It's a very confusing economic picture right now. There's really no way to tell if you're in recession until you look back later. I think probably we we are. I think it'll be pretty short lived. But you've never had a recession with labor markets that are this healthy and and tight. Um, you know, the I, I kind of try to frame it in the book is any basic economic student can understand the forces of supply and demand, and economies run into crisis when they get wildly out of whack. So in the early days of the pandemic, there was way too much supply of everything. Uh, and basically no demand for it. Airline seats, you can think of labor. People had skills that they were willing to do and and, and time they were willing to give to their employers in restaurants and movie theaters, and no one wanted it. Um, on the back end, that dramatically flipped, and it flipped incredibly quickly for pretty understandable reasons. We'd all been cooped up for two years. We were richer by and large. And that's true, by the way, at the low end of the wealth spectrum. Almost everyone came out of the pandemic richer than they went into it, um, which is a crazy stat. Um, and so you have this confluence of desire to spend, money to spend, um, and these huge supply chain clogs that got us where we are. So I, I, I'm fairly optimistic about the economy right now, Um, The places where I think, you know, we'll need to watch closely are actually there was a report out of the United Nations um, a couple of months ago that did some forecasting on the cost of the pandemic and really the the resulting higher interest rate environment and, and sort of underinvesting investing um, that's happening now, uh, that it would uh, uh, disproportionately hurt developing economies. And so I think you'll start to see-
0: As always, I mean, it always seems- to be As always. To and this. actually income I mean, and inequality in developed everything.
1: countries shrank during the pandemic, but I think the gap between rich nations and poor nations has only widened.
0: I mean, you talk about all of us being richer, but I mean, obviously if you survived COVID in terms of your life, then then you had a good COVID. Uh, but the people who won in COVID in economic terms, were they people who got out of cash, given given that the major economic crisis seems to have been inflation?
1: The people who won, I mean, ultimately made a call. Um, you know, I detail a hedge fund investor, Bill Ackman, in my book, who did, you know, what even the Fed didn't, which is that he called the pandemic coming and going. He realized early on in February of 2020, that the market was dramatically mispricing credit risk, effectively not assigning any more risk to maybe a, a low-rated company, to a high-rated company, to the federal government, that everything had gotten so compressed because interest rates had been so low for so long that in their search for getting, you know, a penny of profit anywhere had had kind of become very blind to risk, made a lot of money doing that, called inflation on the back end. But I think actually fundamentally, you know, the... the um, the quick reversal we saw in the financial markets, stock markets, credit markets, real estate prices, which are obviously coming down now, um, the vast majority of financial assets are owned by the top, depending on how you cut it, 5%, 10 15% of people. And so um, when the when the stock market becomes the tail that wags the dog, when it's mistaken for the economy and mistaken for a measure of health, that wealth is not accrued broadly. It's I mean, it's very concentrated. So- um, you know, I think I think we're still a couple of years out from ultimately um, assigning winners and losers, I think, because just the sheer size of the central bank response kind of occluded that.
0: Maybe that's the subject of your new book. Let's end on on the micro level. You say it's both a macro and a micro book. I know you you write a lot about uh, the response of different companies to the crisis, from Goldman Sachs to Airbnb to the Hilton uh, Hotel Company, to Ford, the motor company, to um, to Delta Airlines. Uh, are, are there one or two anecdotes or stories, Liz, that um, you think summarize this crash landing? Are there some micro stories that tell a macro picture?
1: The Airbnb story to me has always been fascinating because, look, I, I was a financial reporter for a long time, and there weren't a lot of things that when I would talk to investors, they fundamentally disagreed about. There just wasn't a lot of room in the 2010s to like fight the system. Um, Things went up and you could grumble about it or you could go along with it. But there wasn't like a lot of value to be sort of gleaned by people who were contrarian and smarter. And I remember early in the pandemic, I was one of those people who said, oh my God, Airbnb is done. Like the idea that you would leave your house, go to a stranger's house. I mean, it just seemed uh, alien to me. And Brian Chesky, I think, deserves a lot of credit here. He raised money in a deal that I did not fully understand at all until I really dug into it or why anyone would have given them $2 billion in April of 2020. He raised money, uh, had to do, take a huge valuation cut to do it, um, and uh, and started realizing, looked at the numbers and said, well, people do want to get out of their houses, but they don't want to go to a hotel for a weekend in Vegas, they want to go. I live in New York. I spent a couple of months during the pandemic up in the Catskills. They want to do that. Pivoted and ended up going public in a year that they had intended to go public in 2020. That's how they had started the year later that year at $100 billion valuation. So clearly you know, a huge winner there. The other story that um, I'm, I've sort of remained interested in because we're still dealing with it is this tug of war, where the pendulum is swinging between labor and management. Um, and you're seeing mm-hmm. it, you know, obviously there is uh, somewhat anecdotal. It's not going to come close to, to making a dent in the decline in organized labor over the last half century. But um, there's clearly a wage war on it. Companies like Walmart, Costco and Target cannot mm-hmm. find enough workers. Um, there's, there's clearly some green shoots around unionization efforts. Um, but there's a story that, that always struck me, which is the CEO you mentioned of Goldman Sachs, who was... Out in the in the Hamptons on a Friday afternoon. Yeah, in, not the uh, most
0: union friendly of companies, Goldman Sachs.
1: No, though I, I don't think their employees have like a ton of grievances. Um, I covered them for a long time, and um, they're they're plenty well taken care of. But you know, a, a young woman who works for him comes up, is in the middle of the workday. He's at a, a working lunch with some clients and says. Uh, David, I I just wanted to come say, hi, we work, I work for you. These are a bunch of my colleagues over there and points to a table, you know, on the other side of the restaurant. This is out in the Hamptons on a Friday in the summer. And, you know, he is just seething um, because their offices are empty and he cannot get people back to the office. They're too afraid to to come to the office with their coworkers, but they'll take a, a, you know, a day off and come out to the beach and um, I'm actually pretty sympathetic to that argument. I think that there has been a little bit of um, sort of self-indulgence baked in among the white collar set. And you're starting to see that really correct now, starting in tech and Silicon Valley, which has been sort of the cushiest place to work for, you know, the better part of the 2000, post-2008 era. And employees are all of a sudden getting very nervous. And so I think these sort of resets are, are healthy. And I, I sort of closed the book in the, in the epilogue going all the way back to the 1300s. Um, you know, it was a feudal society in Europe. People, there's not a modern market for labor, for talent. And the, along comes the Black Death and killed so many of the continent's uh, serfs that they became free agents. And you, I mean, that was sort of the the first birth of modern capitalism, obviously it took a while. Yeah, it's
0: good if you survive, yeah. not so good if you die.
1: Absolutely. But these, you know, big exogenic shocks, I mean, these are what reset... Um, you know economic trajectories, and I think we're only in the the early stages of seeing where this one lands.
0: Liz, let's end on a personal note. Uh, you didn't stand still. You went from the Wall Street, I'm not sure what date exactly, but I think it was during COVID. You went from the Wall Street Journal, traditional newspaper, to Semaphora, a well-backed startup um, that is rethinking journalism and news. I'm not sure quite sure how journalism and news came out of the crisis. It usually does badly in in good or bad times. Did you have a good um, COVID? And, and and tell me a little bit about Semaphore and what you're trying to do and why it's new and, and maybe in some ways as a response to the COVID crisis.
1: Yeah, I, I probably haven't done the kind of navel gazing introspection to see whether I fit into the great resignation narrative. But um, yeah, so I, I've been at the journal almost 10 years and covering all kinds of financial topics. And, um, you know, I'd come back from the book and was trying to sort of figure out the next the next thing and, um, you know, was approached by, as you mentioned, the Smiths, Ben and Justin at Semaphore about um, coming to run their business and finance coverage. And I was just immediately intrigued. I mean, I think there's a couple of things that we're trying to to take head on. One is that absolutely no one trusts the media. Um, certainly it's more pronounced in certain political struggles, but it's pretty universal. Um, Which certainly
0: came out as both a cause and a consequence of COVID and obsession with Marx and China and everything else.
1: But also it's, I mean, part and parcel of a decline in institutions of all kinds. Uh, We've talked a little bit about the sort of damage to the Federal Reserve's credibility, the Supreme Court. I mean, you're seeing these legacy brands Mm. that were once kind of seen as above the fray and neutral just really lose loyalty and trust. That said, at the same time, people are increasingly discerning about individuals that they trust um i'm on your show presumably people listen to you because they trust what you're telling them that you bring them interesting stories they appreciate your point of view um and you know so that's and this is clearly built around um you know a a real discussion with readers and a dialogue and you'll get as you put on the screen now an email from me twice a week with one big story that i've worked very hard to dig up um and then you know a broader view from around the world because uh it, you know this has never been as fraught as it is right now, and we touched on it a little bit earlier. But you know the sort of the the economic nationalism and hawkishness and fractionalism and balkanization, which by the way predated the pandemic, 2016 Brexit, the rise of Donald Trump in the U.S. Um, but clearly that was such an accelerant for that uh, inward-looking onshoring, reshoring, friendshoring um, geopolitics is now you know, the tail that wags the dog in the global economy. And so really trying to bring a global view into everything that we write.